today's advanced training <laughs> had to turn around and make sure what I was training on today budgeting part one and two uh, this is um, there are some some trainings I do that are regurgitations of books that I've read uh, I, I got some good information and I wanted to pass it on to uh, the uh, those who are looking to me for information uh, and there's other teachings that I do that really come from my own personal experience. Uh, and so um, it's kind of where when I say, you know, I'm teaching from a John Maxwell book and somebody says, well, I don't believe that. I go, well, John Maxwell wrote it. I, I, I mean, I don't. But, you know, that my argument sort of ends there. Well, I read it when it is a book he wrote. But when I teach something that I lived and somebody goes, well, I don't believe that. I go, uh, it's not Santa Claus, man. Th this really happened. I can show you. Uh, I keep numbers. This is what we did. And so um, consistently what I find uh, that Americans as a whole struggle with is managing their money. Now, add into that that we are small business owners that are trying to build our own businesses. And there's, there's just not a ton of education out there for those of us who are trying to build our own business uh, on how to budget and manage our money. Uh, I firmly believe that there's, uh, I think the numbers that I saw in the last couple of years, something like 90% of small businesses fail in the first year. And of the 10% who survive, 90% of them fail in the second year. Um, so if you've made it to year three, <laughs> congratulations. You are ahead of the curve on surviving as a small business owner. Now, I think that um, in my personal opinion, I've, I've had lots of conversations with um, eight, uh, not agents, but uh, entrepreneurs outside of our industry. People come to me for advice uh, through friends or whatever. They're always saying, hey, I got this, whatever, what do I do? I think that a lot of people fail in business. The first year they fail because they don't really have a system or a process of how to do what they're trying to do, uh, and they end up uh, wasting a lot of time. And so one of the things I love teaching is time management. That was a struggle I had. If I had not grabbed on to uh, some really good teaching about time management in my early days, I definitely would, my business would have collapsed, no question. But I, I think it's pretty consistent that of the 10% of the businesses that succeed in that first year survive, <laughs> which is success, of those that survive their first year, the ones that fail in the second year, here's why. Because the ones that su survived in the first year, they actually made money and uh, they didn't know what to do with it. And so because they didn't know what to do with it in the second year, they crashed. So I, I teach a lot. If you're around me or you're talking with me one-on-one, -on -one, I come back to a couple of foundational teachings that I learned personally or, or uh, had great uh, mentors teaching me. Uh, it's time management and money management. Those are the two things I talk a lot about because I think those, those are two commodities. Time, you can never get back. Uh, money, you can always get it back if you've made bad mistakes in the past, but um, <laughs> why let it keep slipping through your fingers? Why, why, why? So that's why I teach it a lot um, and uh, am constantly having conversations about it. If you want to have a conversation, let me know. Uh, we'll dive into your finances as open as you want to be. That's the, the, more, the, the better I can be at, at helping you. Uh, but I've had people just lay out their finances and go, what do I do? Okay, well, here's what I did. In this teaching, you're going to learn two things. One, part one 
is basic budgeting for your business. We're going to teach you, uh, one, how I did it in the early days, and then we're going to progress into a little bit more advanced uh, how I did it, but um, still really simple. We didn't make things complicated. And then part two of this is how to properly work yourself out of the field. A lot of people personally produce with us so they can cash flow the growth of their business. So the question is, when do I get to the point that I can step away from the personal production side of things and be fully into the building side of things? Uh, I will say as a, as a, a foreshadowing, uh, I, I personally produced for four years and at, at, at this point right now, it's been over 17 years that I haven't personally produced. So when I stepped out, I didn't go back. And, and that's, um, that's really how I've tried to build my business is by teaching other people how to do the same thing. So we're going to cover those two today. Part one is where we're going to start. Here's some quick tips. Jot these down. Number one, increase your gross. <laughs> Personal sales are vital and recruit agents and get them started. Those are the bullet points there. I, I'll say this. A lot of people ask me, you know, Fitz, uh, how do I budget my money? I go, step one, you need a gross income. Gross income is your income before you pay anything in bills out. It's, 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 your, it's, your, it's your gross, okay? It's, uh, it's, um, it's your top line dollars, they may say, in the accounting world. So if you want to budget your money and want to learn how to budget your money, step one, we need to increase our gross, and, and personal sales are vital. There is no easier way to, to get your uh, income up than to step your personal production up a little bit. And then number two, though, recruit agents and get them started. A lot of people uh, in the agency building side of this, they really think that the magic is in recruiting a new agent and suddenly they're going to get rich. No, <laughs> that's not how it works at all. That's not how any of this works. You got to hire that person and then get them started. It's like a, a newborn baby that you're teaching how to feed themselves. They, they don't come out of the womb just knowing how to do that. You got to you know, learn them up, teach them, right? Number two, manage lead flow. Don't order more than you need. Don't be a lead junkie. And track and from an agency building standpoint, track your numbers and, and only pass out to profitable agents. Now, we're in a, a, a time of a little bit of transition where we're moving from only getting our leads from one source to getting our leads from a couple of different sources. Still, though, when, when I am uh, leading agents uh, with their lead flow, I really want to make sure, and, and I heard a mentor say this 20 years ago, for your benefit and not mine. Like it's, it really has to be for that. But I want to make sure that new agent isn't digging themselves a hole. Some people think the answer to sucking at sales is to buy more leads. Some people think the way I get better at sales is to just buy more leads. Yeah and no. Uh, if you are buying more leads and doing nothing to actually improve your system or process of making those sales, you're just digging yourself a hole. Um, it's not going to translate into your sales really moving up. Don't order more leads than you need. I, I, I mean, a lot of agents focus on buying the leads and they become that lead junkie. And I can't tell you how many insurance agents I've talked to that have been in business for 20 years are still looking for a good lead program. That's because somebody failed them in our industry and didn't teach them how to work current clients, didn't teach them how to serve their client base. Agents have been with us five, 10 years, have two to 4,000 clients on the books serve them. There's the, the, the lead dependency becomes less and less. Third quick tip, manage new business. Make sure that clean apps are going in and once they're into the insurance company, make sure that the pending and conditionally issued business is getting worked. So clean apps going in. Um, the, the, uh, the invention 
uh, of the electronic application has helped us make sure that clean apps are cleaner, right? Most of the apps won't let us uh, submit them if there is a major item missing. But uh, you know what? It doesn't catch typos, <laughs> right? If you type the client's name wrong and then they say their name is something different, that's going to create an amendment. And that's going to hold up their policy being enforced, and that's going to hold up your commissions getting paid. Um, working your pending and conditionally issued, our office really tries to do all we can to support an agent in helping their business get issued. If you will tell us your login uh, information for the different insurance companies' websites, we'll, we'll make sure to help you get that business issued. But if we don't know that you even submitted the business, we can't help even if we know your login information. So it's really important when you're working with our office, and I think a lot of our managers would agree, that when you write an electronic application, we may not know that. Submit a new business transmittal to us so we know to start watching for that app with the insurance company. Make sure we have your login information so we can log in and see when it shows up and we can see what the insurance companies are saying. But you know what? If you're going to build a business, you can't be dependent on us long term to do that for you. You got to do it for yourself. And so it's important that you work your pending and working your conditional issue. Pending is business that is pending approval. Okay, so when we first got started, they were like, you guys, a lot of pending. We're like, pending what? We didn't, <laughs> pending on what? I mean, we didn't know what pending meant. But they said, no, 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 it's pending approval. You got a lot of business sitting there at the insurance company, and they're, they're, they're waiting to issue it. Well, why are they waiting? Because they need something. Conditionally issued, that little stat drives me batty. Conditionally issued means when the, the, the insurance company is done with their part of the underwriting process. And, and, and they, they have conditionally issued this. What does conditionally issued mean? That means it's issued based on a condition being met. Usually it's a simple form getting signed. Usually it's an initial or something. Like it's, it's not a big deal, but if you don't have a system and process for following up on that, and it's a whole different time management conversation, but before I had staff, before my wife came to help me with the pending, she, and she took that over when she came to work with us and we started building a business together because that was her way of making sure we were getting paid. I went out and made the sales and she made sure it got issued. But before all of that, I had a system. Every night, I looked on the insurance company's website and I saw what business had happened, what, what had been added, what had been issued, what hadn't changed in the last 24 hours, and I made notes. And the next morning, I called first thing. Now, I'm central time, so I try to call at 7 a.m. my time to the East Coast companies because I had to get in to talk to them before the West Coast woke up. Because as soon as West Coast woke up and started calling the insurance company, the lines were busy and I wasn't going to get through. So every night I looked at it and I made notes. The next morning I called up and maybe I was on the phone for 30 minutes with underwriters, 30 minutes with the new business people at the insurance companies, and I was getting that business issued. Why? Because selling it is only part of it. You got to get it issued. You got to keep it on the books. Different teachings I do, but oh my goodness, is it important? Number four, don't spend money too quickly. Delayed gratification. It never hurts to save money. I, I it was drilled into my head. Now I'm I'm really fortunate that I've been in the business over 20 years, and I'm only in my mid 40s. I'm really fortunate. It means I was learning some really good lessons before I had learned any really bad lessons. Right, so in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s, I was already learning about terms like delayed gratification. Just because you got the money in your pocket doesn't mean it needs to burn a hole in your pocket. It's, a, it's okay to leave it in your pocket. It's okay to let it sit there for a little bit. It's, it's actually kind of nice to reach in your pocket and feel that money that's there, right? Or, or, or what I like started doing when we started making some money, looking up every morning at my bank account and seeing the, the accumulation of those positive results. I love seeing that. It's okay to do that. Just because you just made your first 
first commission check of $1,000 doesn't mean you need to go sign a new lease for a Mercedes for $1,000 a month. Delayed gratification. Put it off. Just because you can buy it doesn't mean that you should. <laughs> I, I, I need to pull this video. I've been looking for it. I hadn't found it on YouTube yet. Uh, I, and it's, it's Saturday Night Live is always weird about putting their stuff out on YouTube. But I remember Steve Martin... Um, little skit they did and it wasn't when he was part of the cast he was back as a host with Saturday Night Live and he was doing this little skit uh, and he had written a book where it was uh, if you can't afford it don't buy it <laughs> and he just kept saying but what like the couple he was counseling were like well what if we want to buy a new boat but don't have the money don't buy it <laughs> it's just that simple it's the same thing with delayed gratification it never hurts to save money I, I constantly quote a, a mentor from 20 years ago it's like hey Fitz you know what stack it up in a bank account there's nothing ever wrong there may be something better to do with that money but it's never wrong to sock it away in the bank account there may be something better but but <laughs> you're not going to get in trouble for saving number five work hard and smart some people only focus on working hard or smart, but, but the and is important. When we hired Joanne full-time, that was our first full-time staffer, we were already running $200,000 a month. Now, if I could go back in time, that is something I would have done sooner, is I would have hired staff earlier. However, I was working 80 to 100 hours per week, and Heather was working 60 to 80 hours a week. Right now, I feel like there's a, a, oftentimes a... a um, a theme or a trend where people will hire staff really before you're working a full-time hours here. They'll hire, like you're putting in a good 15, 20 hours, like, man, I need some staff. You don't need staff. You need to work, right? I remember that Snoop Doggy Dog, what you need is a jobby job. Like, I, I just think what you need to do is work and, and, and not worry about the staff. Now, but I will say that if you're working, so I, I, my mentor, Andy, when he hired his first staff, he was putting in 104,000 hours a week. Like he, he was working and he hired staff. Um, when I hired my first staff, I was maxed out and Heather was maxed out. Like we were working the hours and the staff helped us. I would have uh, hired sooner. If I could go back in time, I would hire sooner than we did because uh, we were doing this for a while before we hired that first staff and we were already maxed out for a while so it was it was a it's a good investment to hire staff but they got to have a return we'll talk about that in a second okay so here's my early playbook this is where people start to argue with me and they want to get into these philosophical conversations and debates uh save it like we can talk about other stuff if you like philosophically and debate it around that's fun to do with you know, a glass of whiskey or wine or your water whatever you want to do we can talk about it uh but um, this is what i did so it's really hard to argue history especially when it's like my history, I know what I did. So this is what I did early on, and uh, it still works, by the way. That's why I, I still teach it. Okay, so basic formula. You take your gross income. Uh, that's the, uh, when I first got started, I got paid $1,000 that week from the insurance company. Okay, I take that $1,000, right? Take my 1000 bucks. The first thing I do is I pay my lead bill. This is where people go, oh, I think I should, I think I should. Oh, I'm behind on my rent. I'm behind. Okay, 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 okay. I mean, don't, don't butt me, all right? Like, don't, don't Billy Goat argue this. Like, you don't need to butt me on this. I'm telling you, if you're not investing in future sales, the future sales won't be there. I'm smiling when I say that. Like, you've got to invest in those future sales or you have killed your business. You've cut off the oxygen before it ever really got going. So when I had the gross income, coming in that thousand bucks, I would then go ahead and pay my lead bill of $300. 
In, in this day and age, what that looks like is you, you, may, you may go make an, another instant purchase with the Alliance on another $300 worth of leads, or you may go to one of our third-party vendors and go spend $300 on leads. And this is not, these are not the numbers you should do. I'm just saying this is an example, and I'll, I'll break it down further in a little bit. This is an example with numbers. But I had my gross income, and I paid my lead bill. Then what did I, so now I'm left with 700 bucks. I'm just keeping the math easy over here for you. 100 minus 300 is, excuse me, 1,000 minus 300 is 700. Then I did 10% tithe. Some would go, oh, I don't need you shoving religion down my throat. Well, tithe means tenth, so take it easy. It's not a religion thing. Okay. <laughs> but, but yeah, I learned it in my church. And, and I don't, I'm not trying to shove religion down your throat or, or my faith. I don't think you necessarily have to believe what I believe. Okay, take it easy. Take it easy. What I'm saying is you need to be in the habit of getting money in and giving money away. It's a flow of money. Um, it, it, just, it just works. Um, I've heard it said like, you know, if you have a water hose and you put a kink in the water hose, the water doesn't flow as well. Well, well, you holding on to your money like Scrooge McDuck and just swimming around in the gold coins in your basement, like holding on to that, that's the crimp in the water hose. You have to uncrimp it and, and put it out there. I'm not saying you got to give it to your church or my church. I'm saying the American Heart Association could use some money. Right. Like juvenile diabetics needs they need research money. The cancer society needs research money like you, you can put it wherever you want to. But you need to be in a habit of steadily putting that out. I'm just going to say. All right. Now, there's also this other this other idea that what you plant, you will harvest. So if you are stingy with the generosity, then it doesn't come back to you either. It just, it just is that way. This is not, uh, well, I'm Jewish, and so of course I tithe. This, this, is, not, this is not locked in on, on, on being Jewish or being Christian. I, I know people who are, who are Hindu who, who follow this, this tithing principle, and it works. So like, I'm not saying you've got to believe what I believe religions, religiously, but I am saying that you need to put 10% away. Now, I do have the hyper-religious. They're like, well, I tithe 20%. Impossible, the word means 10%. So you can't 20%, 10%. Like you, you didn't, you're, just, you're just giving away 10%. So now that's 70 bucks. Well, some people say, again, people, this is where people debate me. Well, I believe that I should give $100 because that's the 10% of the gross. Well, then do that, man. I'm not judging you. I'm telling you what I did. <laughs> Don't judge me. Right? I thought that the lead bill was essential to my business or that gross income wasn't going to happen again. Right? I thought that was essential. And then, and then I tithed on what was left. And I also saved $70. Put in the put in the savings account. This was not me trying to save my way to wealth by doing that. I wasn't putting it in the, in the savings account and saying, well, that's going to be there when I'm ready to retire. That wasn't the plan. I was putting that 10 percent savings away because I had no credit available to me. I was told by a mentor 20 plus years ago, he said, Fitz, every commission check put three percent away. Just, just set 3% aside. Put it in a shoebox if you want. Because one day you're going to have a chargeback. Or if you're hiring agents, one day they're going to have a chargeback. And you're going to need that accumulation of money in order to stay in business. Wait, there's, I don't know. I, well, listen, Walmart every year, their theft, if you took the theft from Walmart every year and formed a company of that, it'd be a Fortune 500 company. And yet, Walmart doesn't go out of business. Why? Because they plan on losses in their business, not just profits. It is a profit and loss report in the accounting world. It's not just a profit, profit report. Like there is going to be expense. There is going to be loss. It is going to happen. It is part of business. And if you don't plan for it, it's going to kill you. 
I put 10% away because I had no other credit to my name. The 3% I knew just wasn't going to be enough. And there were times when I was really grateful that I did that and I followed the advice of that mentor. So now the rest is what I built my business with. That's 560 bucks in this example. $1,000 income. I pay my $300 lead bill. I'm left with 700 bucks. Tithe 70, save 70. I got 560 to build with. That's not entirely true because 300 of it I already built with. So it's, it's really 860 I got to build my business with. But Fitz, I got to eat too. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I kind of figured that as part of building my business. Like my business is me. If I'm dead from starvation, then, then I can't really build my business. So I lived on that too. Well, I eat more than that. Well, you might need to sell more than that. <laughs> I mean, my, my, maybe a, a thousand is just an example. Um, I, I figured there were some essentials to my life that, you know, was essential to my business as well. So let me get, kind of break it down. Division of gross. So a third of your gross income is going to go back into leads. People ask me all the time. I got a, a message just a couple uh, weeks ago from an agent. How much of my gross income would you recommend I put back into a lead program? Well, I, a standardization answer, a standardized answer is going to be a third. A third of your gross income goes back into leads. Now, now tap the brakes. I will also say this. This is not talking out of both sides of my mouth. I'm saying here's a standard answer, but I can also tell you there were plenty of times when my lead bill was 110% of my gross income. Why? Because I was trying to grow. And in order to get the, the space shuttle off the ground, you consume more uh, fuel than you do going all the way to outer space and back again. So I know it takes more effort to get something going. A thousand pounds of pressure to get a locomotive to move an inch. But once that locomotive is, moved, has, is moving, that thousand pounds of pressure will move it a mile. So it does take effort and energy and resource to get things going. So a, a third of your gross income back into leads may not work in getting the business up and off the ground. But it, it, it will work for a while. And you know what you're going to start seeing is actually your, your, your lead bill is going to get less and less and less of a third of your gross income. Okay, it's an interesting little dynamic there. A third is going to go into other overhead other overhead, all the other expenses in your business. We're going to break that down in just a second. And then a third is going to be profit. Now, if you, if you study any successful entrepreneur, study the, the startups, you know, there's startups like uh, Slack that we use uh, internally in our, in our company that wasn't around just a couple of years ago. Like they, 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 Slack came out of that last economic deal in 2008 is when Slack really emerged as a, as a company. Uh, there are companies like Airbnb and uh, that, that didn't exist. You know, they, they, they emerged, they came out. Start talking and start reading to uh, some of these entrepreneurs and what they did to get those businesses off the ground. They didn't take any profit. They didn't take home any money. What I showed a second ago is 560 is what you built your business with. This number, you got to keep this profit number as low as possible Really, while you're getting the business up and off the ground. Well, Fitz, I got family. I got, I got, I got. Well, you need to sell more. Or you need a little part-time job that's mindless, that doesn't take any effort mentally or physically to do so that you're not hurting your mind or your body in, in building your business, right? You may need that. That's okay. Wait, you're saying that's okay? I'm saying that's okay. Heather had a full-time job when we were getting this business off the ground initially. And then she was working with me and I was selling like crazy to keep the cash flow coming in. But this profit... This right here is not, it's not what you're focused on in getting a business up and off the ground. Profit is the kind of thing you focus on later. Uh, ExxonMobil, <laughs> their profit's like 9% a year. They would, they, would, they would look at this and go, what in the heck are you trying to do? But that's billions, Fitz. You understand how percentages work? I understand the dollars are billions with ExxonMobil, but the percentages are still 
percentages. 9% of their gross is profit. Crazy. This is a, a standard breakdown. Here's the beautiful part of all this. You're in control. If you, if you want to take 95% profit and take the family on vacation to, you know, for a month to Hawaii, you can do that. Just understand that your business will suffer if you're not investing these other two-thirds in there. It's going to suffer. Now, now you, you, can, you can invest all your money into your business and piss your wife off. <laughs> there's that too. So there is a, a balance. If you know how to drive a, a stick shift, like you've got to understand there's a balance between the clutch and the gas. And if you don't work that right, you either stall your car or you rev your engine way too high. But, but you've got to have that balance to make it work right. It's the same thing here. It's, it, there's a balance, and it's not a set number. Well, Fitz said I need to have 33.33333%. No, this is an idea. It's a standardization. But let's talk individually to get more clarity on your situation and your, what you need to do. Let's break down the leads. My first point on leads is pursue all lead types. A lot of people uh, make the mistake in our business of falling in love with an insurance company and an insurance company's product. They fall in love with it. And they're like, I just love that product. And next thing you know, the insurance company pulls that product off the market because it's costing them money. That's why you loved it. People bought it. And, and every time they bought it, it was costing the insurance company money, so they quit selling it. And now you're like, well, what do I do now they pulled that product? And all of a sudden, your world is topsy-turvy because you weren't in love with protecting a family. You were in love with selling a product, right? It's the same with our lead program. People fall in love with one of these lead types, and they focus on that. Well, I don't have this XYZ lead type in my area. What do I got to do? Oh, my gosh. Discover the other lead types. <laughs> I, I've always thought this A1 lead type is the gold in the, in the Alliance lead system. But now we've got other lead companies that are out there. And, and they're constantly changing. So I'm not going to put it out there on this. But if you want to talk to me individually about what we're exploring and what some of our agents are doing, we'll talk to you openly and honestly about, about these third-party vendors and, and the leads they have there. Don't be so... I've had people go, well, I, I, just, I just don't like those final expense leads. I like mortgage protection. Okay, let me, let me just give you a, a general understanding of, of how our country is going right now. Our country is getting older as a population. So the final expense leads are going to be more plentiful than the mortgage protection lead. There are more people turning 65 every day than there are buying a mortgage every day. So it is the nature of the business. So you either learn to adapt or you get smoked like the eight-track manufacturers, cassette tape manufacturers, CD manufacturers don't even do that anymore. Like all these things went out. If you don't learn to adapt to the way the market is changing, you are obsolete. So pursue all those different lead types. Don't fall in love with one of them. Keep your lead bill manageable. Teach your agents referrals, 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 referrals. Work your current clients, current clients, current clients. The lead system is there to supplement the agent's activity. So many people come on board because we have leads. I'm telling you, if that's why somebody comes on board, that's the exact reason they're going to leave. Because the, the, the lead system is not the opportunity. It's a supplement to the opportunity. What's the opportunity? The opportunity is to own your own business. The opportunity is to go out there and dictate your own schedule and, and decide what you're worth financially. So the lead system is just there to supplement the activity. Be quick to see problem agents and stick to your guns. You have to be, and this is maybe another teaching I'll do at another time, uh, fierce conversations. You have to be willing to have those hard conversations with people when you see something that's going to kill you both. Like um, if you're in a foxhole and your buddy just thinks it's really cool to pull the pin out of the grenade, you need to have a fierce conversation with your buddy like, hey, bro, you're about to blow us both up. How about sticking that pin right back in there so we're not going to die today because of you, dummy, right? So it's, it's kind of the same thing here. Like I, 
the way we're tied in, if my agent is making a bad decision, it affects my income too, not just theirs. So for their benefit and mine, I'm going to talk to them and I'm going to say, look, buying more leads doesn't solve the problem that you suck at sales. <laughs> doesn't solve that. Let's work on your phone script. Let's work on your in-home presentation. Let's work on your interpersonal skills. Let's work on those things and improve what you're doing so that when you do buy more leads, the results actually come out. The results actually uh, are, are delivered. Other overhead. Training expenses. I, I just list some off here. Conferences, books, and audios, and clubs and whatever i mean if you're as smart today as you're ever going to be you have a problem <laughs> you need to invest in you the 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 number one person or number one investment i have in my business is investing in me i'm constantly buying books i'm constantly listening to audio some of it costs me money a lot of it these days with podcasts is free i'm constantly going to conferences i've invested thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars at this point over the last 20 years in, in conferences and attending and taking notes and like being around people who know where i want to who know what i what i need to know who are where i want to be both inside and outside of my industry i've paid big money to be around that that's that's a line item in your budget you have to plan for that recruiting ads and this is just to get the width going but craigslist and zip recruiter and monster resume searches all that sort of stuff like there's there's <laughs> a lot of people i was i was i was kind of being uh uh really uh, smart um my first name is pronounced elec and y you can remember that because i'm often a smart elec uh but i was being a smart elec on friday with some of my favorite people and you're watching right now and you know uh you're some of my favorite people in this whole wide world but people ask me all the time like where do I, where do I recruit? Where do I need to, where do I advertise? I go, what am I, Google? Like people ask me this all the time. Google, job search, and see what pulls up and just start running ads on those sites, <laughs> right? But here's the point from a budgeting standpoint. Have a dollar amount that you're just gonna spend every month. Here's a basic formula that I've followed with recruiting. It's gonna be between 100 and $150 right now to get a recruit. $150. So if you're wanting to hire, say, 10 people a month, you need to spend $1,500 a month in, in, in advertising. Now, those numbers change when you start getting referrals. Just like on the sales side, your numbers change from a profitability standpoint when you're less dependent on leads. When I'm less dependent on these ads and I'm getting referrals from new agents that we're bringing on board or people who don't come on board and just give me referrals, like that lowers my cost per contract. But you can bank on, if you want 10, it's going to cost you $1,500. Go spend 2000 just to be sure. Fitz, I don't have 2000 I didn't either when I first got started, but somehow I was spending $800 a week anyway. How'd you do that if you didn't have it? Oh, I was spending it. <laughs> Selling some and you know, getting new credit cards and switching over to here and back over there. And I was doing all kinds of fun math. But it, it, it's what I needed to do to invest in my business to get it up off the ground. And, and nowadays, I listen to these podcasts and these entrepreneurs that did the same thing in other businesses. And I go, oh. It wasn't just my business that that was that, that's not unique to our business it's all these businesses that are startups that got up and off the ground they did the same thing office space checkup line don't sign a lease longer than a year before you go out and get office space maybe run it by your upline and if your upline doesn't have an office they're not the one to ask <laughs> keep going up until you find somebody that's got an office uh, i i typically don't recommend that you get an office unless it's absolutely necessary i mean we we had 15 20 people come to the house at the dining room table uh, maybe that's not feasible for you because you got small children. I don't know. But, I mean, that was even when we didn't have a nice place. It wasn't like we were inviting them to our house now. It was back then when we had nothing. 
Uh, and then maybe getting a little conference room in a hotel uh, is an option. You lock into a lease. I will say, once your business is more established, a lease longer than a year is, is not as big of a stretch. I mean, right now, our leases tend to be more like five-year leases uh, here for me personally in my office. Uh, but the one-year lease, when you're first getting an office, that's ideal because your business is going to look completely different in a year. could be completely different good or completely different bad. You don't want to be locked into something too long that's not going to be beneficial to you. Uh, staff, check up line. Do you need staff or are you just lazy? Do you just not want to learn it? <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I hearing and, and reading of these entrepreneurs, like they, they, they had to do it all when they first got started. And then they hired somebody who could do it a little bit better uh, in often cases. Uh, when you hire staff, fill your weaknesses. Like I, I, Heather and I, we would hire people and bring them in to do the things that we weren't good at or we just really hated to do. Um, but, but this person was willing to do because they like getting paid, you know, so it, it's okay. And then when possible, pay based on performance. I like paying based on performance. It's not always feasible. Uh, some, of the, uh, some of the people you may hire on staff, like, you know, if you hire somebody to scrub applications, I, I'm not sure how you can necessarily scrub applications, make sure they're clean before it goes into an insurance company. You, you, I don't know how you, how you pay based on performance. I mean, the number of applications coming in isn't necessarily based on their ability to scrub. So it's, there's some things you can't do, but when possible, pay based on performance. Okay, let's go to part two. This will be a little bit faster. Part two is quick. Getting out of the field. All right. Now, when I first got started, I remember a mentor saying to me, and a lot of you know I'm pretty literal. He said to me, you need to be making $10,000 a month in overrides before you quit personally selling. Okay, well, what if my needs are 15000 a month? <laughs> I'm going to go in a hole, right? So what I'm teaching here is, is more along the lines of what you should do. Uh, now, I, this is a teaching. I'm teaching masses by doing this. If you're thinking about getting out of the field, you need to have individual conversations, not just watch this video and go, oh, I'm going to walk out of the field because Fitz said on a video. No, let's have a conversation about it. Let's make sure we're being smart about it. So first, you're going to add up all your expenses, both personal and business, anything from your house payment to lead bill. When you're looking at all of your bank accounts, you need to, the, 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 all the money that leaves those accounts on a, on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, you need to, you need to make sure you, you, you add all that up, okay? And initially, you have to make sure this chunk is covered every month, and most of the time, that's done with personal production. So what we're showing here on this graph is here's your expenses, 100%, all of your expenses, that's what 100% means. All of your expenses, and initially you're covering it all with personal production because you don't have a team yet, right? You're not hiring yet. You're just getting started. So initially, if you need $5,000 a month to cover all of your bills, everything in your life that's an expense, then you need to go out there and make yourself $5,000 in personal production. All right, but let's see here. Now on the graph, you're at 20% of your uh, expenses are now being covered by overrides. And so you see what that does with your personal production? The, the personal production uh, dependency becomes less. So as your overrides start to increase, your personal production's needs reduce. Now at this point, it's like 70%. You're almost out, but not quite. This is where most builders make their mistake. Most builders who aren't tracking the number, you need to be tracking your numbers. What if my income is personal production income? And what if my income is override income? Track those numbers. And when, you, when if you're not, what will happen is you get to about 70, 75% and you're like, man, I'm making great money. You are big picture. Total deposit is good money, but you have this much that's still from personal production. And if you get out of the field because you think you're making big money, but you're not actually looking at the numbers because it feels like you're making great money, but you don't know that it's great money, 
or where it's coming from, you'll step out of the field early and you're going to be short this much every month. Step out of the field too early, can't figure out why they're going in a hole financially. Because you're short this much every month. Now, how much is that? It's a percentage, and we're just showing that 30% of your expenses are not being covered. 30% of your expenses are not being covered in this example. How quickly would it take you to go bankrupt if 30%, 30 of your expenses every month weren't being covered? It wouldn't take long for most people. A couple months, <laughs> right? So you've got to make sure you're staying in there. Now, your overrides are, in this example are now 100% of your monthly needs. See the green? Your overrides are totally covering all of your expenses. My recommendation is stay in the personal production field for another three months and you're out for good. Well, how much do I need to produce during that next three months, Fitz? A lot of people ask me this. My answer is as much cushion as you want. Maybe the next three months is when you go on that 90-day run and you're doing 20, 25, 30,000 issue paid a month just to be nuts about it, just to make sure you got that extra cushion in that bank account so when things happen and they do in business that you're not going out of business. And I really want to see you, when you step out of the personal production field, I want to see you never have to go back. So we're not, we're not constantly, you know, going back and forth and back and forth. You know, instead, like you did it right and you left on your terms and you don't have to go back to that personal production because the overrides were done right. Can I help you? Sure would like to. If you're an agent with us, please go to timewithfits.com. That's timewithfitz.com to schedule a time when I can help you directly. Just pick a topic, pick a time, and we'll meet. If you're not an agent with The Fitz Group, I encourage you to go to thefitzgroup.org slash contact. Again, that's thefitzgroup.org slash contact and send us a message. See you next week.